Hello and welcome to Pain Speak, the podcast it doesn't hurt to listen to. Your host, Dr. Deepak Ravindram, has over 20 years of experience treating patients with acute and persistent pain and has been an NHS consultant for more than 10 years. He is a fellow of the Faculty of Pain Medicine at the Royal College of Anaesthetists and holds qualifications in both musculoskeletal and lifestyle medicine. Dr. Ravindran is currently the clinical lead for pain medicine at the Royal Berkshire Hospital. The doctor will see you now. Welcome to another episode of the Pain Speak podcast. And this season we are focusing on long COVID. We've already had a few talks with my colleagues within the Berkshire Long COVID service. And today we are going to be having with us Dr. Abrar Hussain, who is the consultant psychiatrist working in Berkshire. He has a special interest in functional neurological disorders and also runs a clinic for medically unexplained symptoms locally. He's also my colleague and uh, I do ask for advice from him on a lot of conditions which have this overlap between physical and mental health. And as we understand with long COVID, there has been a significant overlap in the physical and mental health domains in these patients. We are starting to see that there are a number of neurological and neuropsychiatric manifestations in long COVID. And I thought it would be very prudent to have Abrar on today. So welcome Abrar to the podcast and uh, please tell our listeners a little bit more about you and your work. Thank you, Deepak, for having me on your podcast. As you said, I've been working in Berkshire for almost a decade now, running a service for people with FND, Functional Neurological Disorder, and really straddling the primary and secondary care interface and working in the area where physical and psychological health overlap. So I work in the NHS as well as do private work. And in my clinic, I see lots of patients who have primarily physical symptoms for which a clear physical cause may not be found. Now, that is really something that we are seeing with a a lot of long COVID patients. And I know when I've spoken to my neurology colleagues, they are finding that a number of uh, COVID positive patients who are presenting to neurology with unusual symptoms of pins and needles, numbness, other sensory issues there. Um, In your experience, can you tell us a little bit more about these neuropsychiatric symptoms that patients seem to be experiencing and what is the prevalence of it with relation to COVID? So we are all still learning more about how this new virus, the COVID virus operates. There are clear signals quite early on now from the studies that have been done so far that the COVID virus has significant neuropsychiatric implications. So I can talk about a couple of studies where they looked at people who had been infected with COVID and then followed them up to look for any neuropsychiatric complications. Some studies have found that the first diagnosis of a psychiatric illness appears to be more common in the first three months after COVID infection. And this is when compared to any other acute illness something quite unique about the way the COVID virus seems to operate. And more recently, there was another study that showed that 
आपको थर्ड ऑफ पेशेंट्स इन द फर्स्ट सिक्स मंथ्स आफ्टर ए कोविड इन्फेक्शन वुड हैव अ न्यूरोलॉजिकल और अ साइकेट्रिक साइकोलॉजिकल डायग्नोसिस एंड व्हाट्स व्हाट्स रियली इंटरेस्टिंग इज दैट अराउंड ट्वेल्व परसेंट ऑफ पेशेंट वुड हैव हैड द फर्स्ट टाइम डायग्नोसिस इन दैट इन दैट टाइम पीरियड सो क्लियरली देर सीम्स टू बी अ लिंक बिटवीन सफरिंग फ्रॉम एन अक्यूट कोविड इन्फेक्शन एंड डेवलपिंग either a neurological manifestation or a neuropsychiatric manifestation in the next few months so clarify this for me abra this is very unusual is this known that viral infections can have these kind of psychiatric and psychological sequelae or is covid unusual in that respect what do you think are the mechanisms that's accounting for these symptoms so we know that a viral illness in general can affect the the brain it can cause uh, encephalopathy and that can be associated with a psychiatric manifestation uh, be it depression be it psychosis we still don't know how exactly the covid virus affects the brain and so far we haven't seen any conclusive evidence that the covid virus um has a direct impact on the brain tissue with more research and more time we might learn more about how this relationship works but what's more important i think from a mechanism point of view is that the covid virus um and the associated difficulties with infection seem to have a significant psychosocial impact so in general any physical illness any long term condition can have an impact on mental health on psychological health with the covid pandemic this spectrum is more magnified so what we have been seeing so far is people who have had to socially isolate socially distance from loved ones um be in quarantine even because of got the infection um people who have had to experience a lot of loss bereavement and the associated grief response people who've suffered financially due to the hardship created uh, by the virus and the lockdown and the social economic impact of that on people's mental health um people i see in my clinic tell me how there is a constant news and social media feeds about the covid virus and the death rates and all of that at some level is surely having an impact on our on our psyche it's also testing the resilience of individuals and in the uh, in the absence of the usual support structures i think um people are getting at a uh, more risk of developing um psychological difficulties so i think the mechanism is more psychosocial at the moment than a direct physical response but it's something that we need to really uh, look out for and support people this is uh, all those points are very relevant isn't it in terms of the psychosocial impact of isolation and quarantine that have happened there does this change with you know do you find or is there some studies or suggestion to say that people who have spent time in icu or who have been hospitalized would have a higher rate of these psychiatric or psychological issues as compared to those in community what are your thoughts and what is the scientific basis for that so we know that uh, any stay in intensive care increases the risk of um, post traumatic stress disorder so ptsd uh, is in about 25% of people who are uh, who have experienced any trauma and a stay in icu you could argue that is similar to a traumatic event 
where you might be um, semi-conscious, you might be disorientated, see different faces of uh, of staff. Uh, you might have medical procedures done without your full uh, full awareness, and all of that can have an impact psychologically. We also know that a pre-existing anxiety uh, can be a risk factor for uh, developing psychological sequelae in people who have been through intensive care. And COVID is uh, is uh, very similar in that sense. I think COVID creates that sense of fear. It's a new virus. Um, I told you earlier about the isolation and the and the loss. I think the fear of having COVID, the fear of um, of death, the fear of not having the treatment uh, available. Although now we have more and more treatment coming through, all of that can create uh, a, a precursor. And patients admitted to intensive care, uh, it. It affects the way uh, the illness is cognitively uh, looked at. The perceived threat um, is is quite high, and that can affect our our brain system. So I can talk a bit more about the amygdala uh, if you want. Uh, but really, people's response to a trauma, to a threat, and then the direct impact of the physical illness itself—all of that I think plays a role in uh, in people who've been through intensive care and have um, have psychological um, complication because of that and I think that is quite useful and will be very relevant to our listeners Abrar can you expand a little bit more about this brain structure called the amygdala and what its uh, role is in threat perception I think it will be quite useful to put into context the whole picture of PTSD because in the community service, like for example, in the long COVID service that uh, I'm part of, we are seeing that anxiety, depression, which is new onset anxiety and depression is occurring in almost 60 to 70% of patients. Um, there's something, a slight nuance with regards to the scale, which I'll come to later. But in that context, I think it'll be useful to understand whether it's in the community or hospital, what is the role of this brain structure, the amygdala? Yeah, absolutely. So amygdala is part of the brain and it is uh, part of the primitive brain. Um, so it was part of the reptilian brain and what is the what it does is looks out for threat. So especially in people who've been exposed to threat, the amygdala can get super sensitive and uh, it's on high alert. And when that happens, it can continue to scan uh, scan the surroundings for any any threat, any perceived threat. And even um, a, a stimulus, which may not be threatening to someone else, may be perceived as a threat because it has some common um, sort of signals with the earlier threat, earlier trauma. So when that happens, um, the amygdala starts to respond. It starts to uh, tell the brain's uh, brain and the, and the body that, there is some threat going to happen, and and that can can really lead to a, a post traumatic response. So you, typically, um, we see a fight, flight, and freeze response, and that's usually a coping with trauma. Um, what's also interesting is that a lot of um, studies have looked at um, uh, soldiers in in war zones and how they respond to threat, and there's something called perceived threat, wherein um, they get primed to uh, picking up signals which they perceive as a threat, and that that has, has an impact on their long-term psychological health. So I think in some ways, being in intensive care, um, 
having the covid uh, infection itself and being really unwell in the context of all the psychosocial difficulties uh, that that has some parallels with with trauma so the amygdala i think is, is important in that sense and presumably the financial hardships or furloughing and those kind of social issues will also be perceived as a threat is that right absolutely so the 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 uncertainty of it is the is the key issue here i think and uh, being furloughed or, or being unemployed and then not being able to support um support your family um i know some people who've had the dilemma of actually uh, going to work when they are unwell or staying at home and not having the money coming in so practical consideration like those which actually can feed into the whole anxiety uh, and the threat um of of just not being able to cope actually so all of that can have an impact on and on psychological health and we don't we don't often talk about the the wider social determinants but i think they also have a, a huge impact on on psychological health and what would you mean by social determinants would you be able to expand on that now i think that's quite relevant that you say that because we did a survey right now of the first uh, 100 150 patients that have been referred to our long covid service and what was surprising to note was that uh, most of the referrals have come from the berkshire postcodes which are considered to be affluent and and we've had a lot of evidence to say that as you mentioned that covid seems to have disproportionately affected ethnically diverse communities has disproportionately affected those uh, who are from a more poorer neighborhood yet even to the long covid service we haven't seen more of those patients who have uh, come from disadvantaged backgrounds or who are ethnically diverse we still are getting people from the so called affluent postcodes as it were and uh, you're right we have to probably do more in order to make this more accessible um how therefore what are the services for example in berkshire that would be available to patients who are having these neurological or neuropsychiatric uh, problems so i think it's it's helpful to think about services um in in two main formats so you have the existing services and then you have newly developing and evolving services which which can be utilized so in terms of what's already available um i think primary care and and gps play a very important role here in terms of the assessment and diagnosis in terms of just capturing the symptoms that people present with and um offering at the primary care level um a good level of information psychoeducation um practical advice around uh keeping one safe um 
information about the vaccine, for example, and all of those are quite quite helpful um, first up. And then if people are still um, struggling um, physically or psychologically, and then they need to be stepped up to other services, then um, the usual uh, pathways in, in Berkshire, um, they include the IAP service, where all the common mental health disorders like depression, anxiety, and PTSD, they get uh, assessed and they get uh, treated through, through therapies. Um, primarily using a CBT approach, but I know that uh, they're expanding the different therapy models and now can also provide EMDR and other other therapies. Um, and then when you move away from the primary care services, you have the secondary care services, uh, which are for people with severe and enduring mental health problems. And those include mainly community mental health teams. Um, and within within my service, which straddles the primary care and secondary care is mainly around providing support and, and treatment for patients with um, physical symptoms where there is no a clear uh, correlation to a physical disorder or any other comorbid mental health disorder. Okay, that's very helpful there. Um, one other thing that I often had, so obviously within the long COVID service that I'm part of, we do have access to these IAP, the talking therapy service for Berkshire. Uh, we have very good links with them where we are able to refer patients for that kind of support. And as I understand, even GPs can do that referral directly and sometimes patients can in fact self-refer as well. So all of these options are open for patients to access this kind of support. Um, What would be, where would the role of a psychologist or a psychiatrist happen in your point of view when should a GP be thinking about referring to the traditional talking therapies and psychology and when should they be thinking of approaching psychiatry provision? So for any um, any new infection, any, any trauma-based presentation, the initial um, intervention is mainly around containment, around psychoeducation and just giving people the, the practical tools to, to get by things. But sometimes the psychological uh, difficulties can persist, may make difficult, uh, people difficult to cope, for example. They may not be able to function as well. They may be depressed or anxious. So in, 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 those, uh, in that cohort of patients, uh, a referral to the talking therapy service or even a self-referral where a patient can actually uh, contact with service themselves um, and that can also help with the initial engagement, that would be helpful. So psychologists play a very vital role in helping people make sense of what's going on, in providing interventions um, which are evidence-based like CBT, which can help to um, challenge any negative thought patterns, challenge any negative behaviors, and then um, from that point onwards, lead them to a much better psychological health. Uh, In in contrast, psychiatrists deal mainly with um, mental disorders which require a medication approach. So uh, if I see someone in clinic, for example, I would talk about uh, the options that we may have in terms of medication, and that may largely involve antidepressants. Uh, And I also work with uh, the colleague in psychology, um, and we work together as a a multidisciplinary uh, team. Uh, Some psychiatrists also will be trained in therapy, and they might be also able to offer therapy. Um, And what I think works really well is having that multi- uh, disciplinary input, MDT approach to managing a patient. 
that's absolutely right i think in a condition like long covid the mdt approach is absolutely vital really i found that working with the uh, occupational therapists physiotherapists and psychologists i couldn't have possibly done all of what we are able to offer now without having that mdt support there that's absolutely right thank you so much for that part um one of the things that's come up in you know doing this long covid work and and we use a tool called phq9 so uh, which is a, apparently a tool for identifying uh, a depression or risk of depression and something that's come up in in repeated attempts to do this questionnaire so we send patients a self assessment questionnaire at the time of being referred to the long covid service and invariably that score on that tool comes really high so there are nine questions that are asked and they are each uh, scored out of 0 1 2 and 3 and it comes up really high but patients actually when we talk to them they insist that it's not depression but it's fatigue can you throw a little bit more light on on why that might be what is is this a problem with the tool or is this uh, is this the nature of the condition the phq9 is is a good screening tool so it has a good reliability um it's useful where we want to get a snapshot view of people who might be depressed from a big kind of population uh, or a big cohort of people and that might help us to um determine whether patients need the service or not i think uh, i've used the bhu9 uh, in in patients and i think we do need to employ a little bit of clinical judgment to the scores as you said fatigue people who are fatigued can also score high on on the phu9 without necessarily being depressed in a, in a clinical sense so i think a combination of using the tool but also employing a level of uh, clinical judgment to the presentation is very important especially where we are dealing with long covid where we know that there is some psychological impact but also fatigue appears to be a quite a predominant uh, feature of the syndrome so many people will be fatigued will feel a bit hopeless will feel a bit tired and not motivated but they might not be depressed in a clinical sense so their mood might not be affected they might still be able to enjoy things for example and fatigue is only that they are they're struggling with so so i think i think it's a good tool but needs to be looked at from a, a clinician perspective as well i think that's very useful to take that we cannot one more way we reinforce the fact that you can't just go by a set of numbers or scales i think we do need a clinical correlation for this there abra so thank you for that what would your main kind of pieces top pieces of advice be then to gps in terms of uh, support for their patients and times of referral you did speak about psychoeducation you did speak about things that primary care can do is there any parting words any last comments you'd want to make on how they can support patients further before referring to specialists like yourself or talking therapies i think what these patients uh, need uh, along with the like education information is uh, is just an empathic listening ear is someone who can validate their experiences provide the assurance that actually uh, their symptoms uh, appear to be in the context of covid and uh, as and when more information comes through about options you know service options or treatment options uh, they'll be they'll be referred and also then um, assessing the level of impact so if people are able to 
manage by themselves, have a good level of self-resilience, self-care. They probably don't need a lot of input. They just need that reassurance and uh, containment, safety netting, checking in uh, again after maybe two or three months. Um, and then those who need to be referred into a, a particular service, like you talked about, then referring them uh, into, into a service and then supporting them in that in that journey. Thank you so much, Abra. That is really useful. Well, uh, once again, thank you so much for making time to come on the Pain Speak podcast to talk about neurological and neuropsychiatric issues with long COVID. Uh, this brings us uh, to the end of this episode there. And I hope to have you guys back in for our next episode. Thank you so much, Abrar. Thank you. That's it from me for this episode of the Pain Speak podcast. I hope you found this episode useful and furthered your understanding. This is your host, Dr. Deepak Ravindran, signing off now. All episodes of the Pain Speak podcast are available to download and listen to on major podcasting platforms. I look forward to seeing you again in the next episode. Till then, stay safe and good day and goodbye.